they first want the investor to understand and appreciate the technology, right? So that when they say, hey, we, we hit this milestone, do you understand how significant that milestone is or uh, what or not, right? So because the milestones may not be revenues or milestones may not be customers. The milestones may be, hey, we're finally able to get this to close. So, you know, timing closure can be done or finally we're able to get this thing done. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. In this episode, I'm going to talk to Karthi Madasami. He's the founder and managing partner at MFV Partners. MFV Partners is a venture capital firm based in the Silicon Valley. And Karthi is a good friend of mine I've known for many years. Karthi, welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. Thanks for inviting me. Good to be here. Hopefully I have a good conversation. Yes, I want to ask you about your startup investments, how you make decisions, your thesis for MFV, the areas that you focus on, why do you say no to companies and maybe other things as well. Let's start with you. You were born in Madurai in India and then you went to college in Chennai. Eventually, you made your way into Silicon Valley. You were in San Diego for some time when you were at Qualcomm. You also had a stint in India in venture capital and then you decided to start your own firm. Before we get to MFV, let's talk about your journey. What got you excited about technology in the early days? I was pre-TV era. So, you know, when I grew up till my mid-teenage, there was no, not even a television at home. Uh, so we just had to listen to radios and uh, newspapers. But I saw during my teenage, the advent of technology, we got the televisions. And then with the televisions, the broadening of things, the computers came into schools. So the, the main years of my teenage, probably I saw each of these technology element coming into our life and then fundamentally changing it. So I think the fascination probably came from that because I know very vividly what is the pre-technology era means. Where you're just roaming around and uh, there's not too much to do and uh, and what technology I actually opened your eyes to. And then yeah, I was just good at science and good at math. It was a naturally interesting subject for me. Then you put those two things together, then you wanted to spend a lot of time in this technology. The other thing, probably over time, that I found is that the best way to move up in your social strata is through technology. That is true. Yeah. Any good technology, fundamentally, what it does, it democratizes access, democratizes reach. That's the way to move up in your social strata. We've seen that in India in the last 25, 30 years. So the fascination all came from there. Every new technology, every new piece of thing that come into the world and how that fundamentally changes, it's always fascinating to watch. Yeah, we grew up with very little and in a span of just less than two decades, we now have power of information in our hands through the smartphones where we can access any kind of information. That kind of access was barely available to very, very small group of people, most powerful people 20 years ago. But now because of technology, data, information and power is now more democratized and people have access to all of that. How did you decide that venture capital is where you want to be? And that's where you want to build your career. What attracted you? That was really an accident, I got to tell you. This was during business school, like early to mid-2000s. We had just coming out of the dot-com bust. And I had done three startups until that point. So I was in business school. And uh, I spent a summer at JKNB Capital with not knowing anything. I just really, really got fascinated by it. Until that time, I had to put a blinders and work on a specific technology, go build products. And then 
suddenly as a VC, every day you're seeing three different companies fundamentally changing the trajectory of technology or business. And do you like that? Yeah, you, you know, JKNB was, uh, they had a hardware group and a software group. And hardware was the deep tech part of it. So I was in the hardware group. And each of these technologies, new types of communication systems, new types of access. And uh, it, was, it was definitely exciting. Every day you see different technologies that you can evaluate and whatnot, right? So, so that was the original fascination and interest that you actually can help a company, evaluate companies, know about these companies, work with these companies. But I didn't know whether I wanted to have a career in that or not. And then at that time, the de facto advice is that don't get into venture capital early in your life. Get into venture capital when you're 50 plus, when you're like getting ready to retire, that should be your last job. So I got every bit of advice saying that don't do this, don't do this. So I had a, I had an offer to do Qualcomm Ventures. Every advice from everybody said that don't do it, don't do it. I don't know why I still did it, but I tell okay, I'll, I'll do this for a few years and then I have always, always an operating itch. I'll probably jump into Qualcomm as a happy medium, which was a technology company as well. So if I have my operating itch too much, then I can jump into that and whatnot, but I never got into that. So it's in, in many ways, the candid answer is that it's an accident. And then there are several times it came to go, oh, maybe I should have done more, maybe product management or tech work for 10 more years or 15 more years before getting to venture capital, but never know how those paths would go. I have no regrets, but it's not like some planned career choice that, uh, that I got in. A lot of people come to venture capital accidentally, although it's now become a glamorous sector, it tends to attract a lot of attention. Most people who enter the sector do it accidentally. But now that you've been in the venture capital industry for a while, you decided to stay and you didn't go back to technology or operations or product management or other business roles. So you must really like venture capital. What keeps you attracted and what keeps you in the industry? Yeah, I think that the fascination with the technology, and I do deep tech, right? So that's that's mm -hmm. been my all my career. New technologies, the fascination that started in the teenage still continues on, right? Like every new technology, how that can fundamentally change. So I get invigorated by the work that I do every day. For example, tomorrow we're meeting a couple of entrepreneurs, and then that invigorates me, what they're trying to do and what that could fundamentally change. So, the, so there's a lot of continued kind of kid in a candy shop type of uh, fascination to new technology that can influence change. And working with entrepreneurs, that's definitely have kept me going. It's fundamentally that. One of the things that I keep like telling people that deep tech does not mean that it is very, very long time. It takes a lot of capital. Deep tech really means that things that can be commercialized. It's not like a science fiction. It's not like some lab project that you are fascinated by just the technology part of it, but more importantly, how it can be implemented. In my last 15, 20 years or 25 years of my career, I've seen several of these things getting implemented. You know, first Bluetooth, first 3G. Today, we all take all those things for granted. That fascination continues on. So I, I think so that's what keeps me going. I think if I had to do something else, even in venture capital, if I had to do some other area, maybe I will get bored. Evaluating new technology just keeps me going. Yeah, I see that the fascination that you developed for technology as a teenager, you continue to live with that curiosity. And eventually you started uh, MFV Ventures. And what are your areas of interest? How do you think about investments? Yeah. When I left Qualcomm, one of the things that was clear was that it's not just horizontal technology for technology's sake. It's not like, hey, I'm building a microprocessor and it's a horizontal component type of a thing. What we saw was that enough technology have been built now that they are ripe to go take over, transform different industries. At Qualcomm, we were investors in cruise automation, which one of my friends led that round. And then that got bought for a billion dollars by GM within like a few years and uh, without any revenues and things like that. 
that started the whole industry around autonomous driving and uh, capabilities. When does GM buy a company without any revenues for a billion dollars? It was clear that this is going to fundamentally change auto as an industry. And similarly, there are fundamental changes happening in manufacturing, agriculture, knowledge services, space. Any one of these things, you look at it, they are fundamentally changing, fundamentally being changed. And the reason we started this fund was two things. One is like, even in the valley, the number of people that actually evaluate early stage deep tech, it was getting smaller and smaller because most people have moved on to primarily enterprise software, consumer or fintech. So there's a big gap. And then we were seeing big opportunities coming the way as well because large industries are going to get transformed over the next several decades. So there is a big opportunity gap and there is a big opportunity coming in. That's why we started the fund. So it was very clear that there is a big gap here to be filled. And since then, more firms have come in to focus on deep tech. But still, there is if you ask a deep tech entrepreneur, one of the questions they'll say, like, well, there's not enough VC that I can go talk to. Especially if you build a hardware, like, there's not enough people that will actually go evaluate. As soon as they see a hardware, they say, okay, this is not my cup of tea. So we try to fill that gap. Yeah, that's the reason for our existence. And it, it aligned with what we have done in the past. It's all my career I've been working on you know, these type of new technologies. So there's a little bit of a centrality to that as well. So, so we are an early stage deep tech fund. We are not like one sector. We feel that a lot of the pillars of Silicon Valley, which is computing, communication, networking, drives a lot of these deep tech sectors. And so we are a general purpose deep tech. Within that, we are reasonably broad. We'll go all the way from algorithmic models become software to semiconductor components to full stack systems with hardware plus software, early stage, seed through A. That's what we focus on. But it, we all have the roots around either electrical engineering or computer science kind of influencing these changes. So we're not investing in things that we don't know, but within that we are reasonably broad. Is it difficult to evaluate deep tech companies? What do you look at in the first one or two meetings? It has an additional layer of technology. That's why it could be difficult. But I think the fundamentals still remain the same. Are you solving a fundamental big problem that the industry or the ecosystem needs? And are you solving in a way that it is fruitful? You can actually go make the change. And are you the right one to go make it? Those questions are still the same, whether you're doing enterprise software or fintech and all those things. But you have an additional element of technology. You're solving it using this new technology, or whether it's lab proven. Is that technology going to work, or is it the right technology to go do this job? So that additional layer of complexity is there, which is why sometimes it's harder for some general purpose person to do early stage deep tech because you only have some background to say, "Hey, I think this physics will work." I think this particular thing will work. This uh, closed loop system will work. So you, you need to have that additional layer of complexity address. But most of the deep tech still you evaluate through the traditional lens of saying that, hey, are they solving a big problem? And is that is the problem worth solving? And if they solve it, will they be able to make money? And then are these the right guys to go solve it? Right. So you know, guys are gals. Yeah. So you have the standard questions that any investor would ask about the business model, about the market, about the team and all of those things. In addition to that, you also have questions about the technology. Is it ready for prime time market? Has it been tested enough in the lab? Does the team have the capability to execute and build a product, not just keep it as a research phase solution? Those are complicated. I want to ask more questions about that, but let's talk about your investments. How many investments you make? At what stage do you prefer to invest? I want to get a feel for that before we go into more details. Yeah, sure, sure. We did 12 investments in Fund 1. We're right now in Fund 2. We're just closing two investments out of Fund 2. 
So our portfolio list is 14 at this point, and then we're evaluating companies. We're investing now. We're not pausing or we're not slowing down or anything like that. What stage? The stage is blurring depending on different parts of the country. Actually, the, the stage is very different. So we look for companies that have already built some technology because that's what our strength is. We can go deeper into the technology, get our hands dirty, understand whether this will work or not. So when somebody comes really with just some idea, that's not enough. But there are companies, for example, spun out of universities where they've done a bunch of this work already. You know, they may not be enterprise grade yet, but they've done enough of this work already. In those cases, we're happy to do that first check as a pre-seed. So we look for some technology to have been built and there's a team behind it. Sometimes that's pre-seed, sometimes that's seed, sometimes that's kind of pre-series A, sometimes that's A, but that's the stage. Beyond A, we typically do not go in. So seed through A is what we call ourselves. But there have been enough pre-seed we have done because work has been done in some universities that got spun out or some labs that got spun out. So we look for technology to have been built at least to some extent, yeah. So you invest in about three to four companies per year, roughly. Right, right. Okay. Yeah, we're still a more, little more closer to a traditional VC fund where our portfolio size for the fund too will be like 20 companies, which will invest over three years, so roughly six companies a year type of the thing, yeah. What do founders do well in the initial meetings. Can you give examples of one or two companies from your investments? How did they prepare? What did they tell you that got you excited? Right. Let's take Agility as a good example. It's a humanoid robot. They've done really, really well since we invested three years ago. But I think when they came in, humanoid robot as an investment category was not something that everybody agreed on. Even today, maybe people don't agree on. So what we liked was two things. And this is typically the case with every startup that we end up investing. They focus on... The problem and how they are solving it. The problem is, in many of these cases, a different type of robot is required, like a humanoid type of robot is required compared to a wheeled robot or other robots. That part is understood. Then they focus on how they have built it and why they have built it in a way. And this is the life research of Jonathan Hurst, the founder CTO. Uh, So they had done this work over several years, all the way from his PhD thesis to taking the research to Oregon State, building that up, before spinning that out into a company. So the first meeting, that's what we typically focus on. We don't ask for business model. We don't ask for projections. We don't ask for any of these things. Because if you understand what the problem you're solving and how you're solving it and the technology solving it, I think we're all reasonable people to figure out, hey, then we can put this business model through. We can can make this type of revenue and all those things. So the first meeting, we typically tell folks that just focus on what problem you're solving and how you're solving it, right? The successful outcomes with us are people that just focus on those things. Aggregate is another good example of how exploding video data, able to understand that, understand the biases, understand uh, where the gaps are, how to optimize it, how to create a data set. That problem was a very well understood emerging problem that, that they were able to convince us. And then they talked about their core sets, how they're building it. Right after the first meeting, we were like, okay, this is something that we want to spend time on. So I think the first meeting, especially those two things, we typically focus on. Because we are a deep tech fund, you know, we want to understand the technology quite a bit. What happens after that? How long does it take from the first meeting for you to say, yes, I want to invest in this company? It depends. I think that we have these like learnings from our experiences that if you're not excited out of your chair, jumping out of your chair in that first meeting, that investment should never happen because you, you, you <laughs> never you never get there. Like the first meeting has to be that, my God, I want to do this type of a thing. Right? There are some companies that may not make it to the next thing because once you go a little more deeper, you're like, ah, okay, this there is this problem, there is this thing and all those things. But the first meeting, you have to jump out of the chair. You have to feel like, man, I want to spend time. I want, I, I want to invest in it, right? 
So that's the first step. We have done a couple of investments within a week. So that's the fastest we have done. Okay. Uh, but there are cases which it takes like maybe four to six weeks because we got to do some understanding, your diligence, we got to go deeper into the technology. We may bring in some experts that we have on our roster to evaluate the tech or sometimes talk to customers in terms of whether there's a problem that needs solving and things like that. Our experience in the last four or five years is that like it's taken anywhere from one week to six to eight weeks. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Four to six weeks is also enough time to build a relationship with the founders because you're very selective about your investments. You only invest in four companies, maybe five now. And each of these investments is an important investment for you. Exactly. What's the most common reason for you to say no? A lot of no's happen in the first meeting. And a lot of the times it's because the problem is not interesting enough for us. Or we believe it's not large enough. We could be wrong, right? But but it, 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 we have to all have our own conviction on what problems are worth solving and what's not. Most of the times it's that or a combination of we don't believe that, that, that the tech is the strongest to go solve that problem. So those are the two things that in the first meeting we typically say no to. In the subsequent ones, how you're going to go to market is an important factor. If you are a component selling into somebody else who will sell into somebody else who will finally sell into the actual customer, sometimes you don't have any control. So there are cases where a good company, a good technology, but we just know that the go to market for this or the the way to go build these things is going to be much harder. Either they need to integrate forward integrate or backward integrate and have a different offering, and then we don't believe that they have the capability or it's going to take... Uh, lot more either time or a lot more uh, energy to do it, then we'll say no as well. So yeah, the, the second and third meetings, the reason we say no becomes like more nuanced, more complicated. But the first meeting, it's, it's typically about is the problem worth solving and then is this the right technology to go solve that problem or not. We also will say no for valuation as well. We're managing other people's money, so we want returns. So we'll say no for valuation. We'll say no for this is not the right syndicate and right group of investors to be around this table. All those things happen at the later parts of the evaluation. It has to work for you, your return yeah. profile, ownership, and all of that matters as well. How does the team work within your firm? We have six of us, right? So we have Ashish who looks at a lot of the algorithmic data, software. We have Dr. Ruchi who looks at a lot of the bio stuff. We have Pavan and Steve that work on some of the AI and the software stuff. And Rudy is a senior associate. So all of us get involved. We're still a small group. We believe in the soft power. There is no hard voting saying that based on the number of votes. You don't do all that. Right? If there's enough pushback, the whoever is sponsoring the investment takes that feedback and then goes back as well. There's also understanding that some of the things you may not agree with, but it's worth making that investment or worth taking that go because of how the argument has been presented. We all also know that not every decision has to be completely full consensus because we are inventing the future. So we have that maturity and capability to do that. And we're still a small firm. We move really, really fast as well. So we don't go belabor through a process too much either. One of the reasons we can move quickly is also because we are a smaller team. But the decision-making itself is more through soft power. If one or two of us fundamentally disagree with it, this, this could not return capital, then we can push back and then the, 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 the investment may not get uh, done. Uh, so far, we have not gotten to a point where there was a, a really big pushback in terms of, hey, this is completely out of norm. Type of thing. But we try to go into enough of these areas where not everybody is fully convinced, but it's, it's a fine balance. Yeah, It's really hard for a founder to convince one investor Convincing a group of six people is definitely difficult. What's the advice that you would give based on what you've seen successful founders do? How can they prepare for that meeting with you? Right, right. 
So first of all, not all six get involved in all the companies. We everybody has a little bit of expertise where they lean towards type of a thing, right? So there is a smaller group, if you will, which is primarily responsible for different areas and whatnot. But you're right. You're you're investing at seed where most of the time it's actually pre-revenue, which basically means you have to have a conviction. We go with our conviction rather than only data. Because I think at this stage that we are investing, we have to have conviction. Like, hey, this shall work because this this is solving these type of issues. And then there is this is the way the market is going and there is a way to intersect it. So we have to have conviction. So early stage investing is all about conviction. It's not about data. Right? And, and I think that the biggest thing that a founder can do is provide that. Like, hey, here are the reasons why this is going to happen in this time frame. And here are the, the problem areas. So the good example is go back to agility. So robotics is getting into logistics, but it's still small. And then there's this thing that everybody talks about robotics never, never returns money. It's not been a big sector and things like that. Right? But what they were able to convince us is that, look, it's getting automated, not for human replacement or anything like that, but just to manage the complexity of things and automation that you need to do to handle the productivity. So the current wheeled robots or current type of robots that moves the shelves around and does this thing, it has a limit. The natural thing is now they are they, now warehouses and logistics firms need a robot that can be more human-like, work along with humans. That we believed in. So they were able to convince us of that. So like, hey, here is where the industry is going, and then this is going to be a very, very important requirement. You really need to go see revenues. We didn't need to go see hey, how many customers you guys already have. But can we understand the problem statement based on where the industry is going and then intersect with why their solution is the right one to go solve that? I think if the entrepreneurs provide that very clearly and then focus on that, as early stage investors, we don't need to go look for revenues or talk to customers and things like that. We need to be convinced of that. And then we, because we only focus on deep tech, this is the only thing that we are working on all day, every day. So that helps us as well. Like if I'm doing one day fintech, one day this, then I probably need more time or more data to convince myself. But if we are only working on this all the time, for us to get to here's where the market's going to move, it's easier to get there. When you go in with high conviction, what can founders expect from you? In what ways are you able to support the founders? So we're an early stage investor. So if you require really an early stage deep tech startup, what they require, they require two, three things, right? They first want the investor to understand and appreciate the technology. If we hit this milestone, do you understand how significant that milestone is or uh, what or not? Because the milestones may not be revenues or milestones may not be customers. The milestones may be, hey, we're finally able to get this to close. Timing closure can be done or finally we're able to get this thing done. Having that appreciation is very important for the entrepreneurs. They know that, hey, here's how we are going and there is an investor group that understands that or provide feedback to that rather than just say, where is the revenue? How much revenue? What is your CAC, LTV type of thing, right? Second thing is they're still trying to figure out product market fit or they're still trying to figure out their go-to-market, the motion of it. What is the right motion, right? That's where we primarily focus around. It's like, you know, hey, what is the right market for this? Problem you're solving here. And then what is the right go-to-market here? Is it partnership? Is it, can we introduce them to some of the potential customers here? Can we get some early feedback in terms of how to figure this out? Is it very small enterprises or does it have to be big enterprises? If it's a big enterprises, what is the right model and all that's what we focus on. Like we have companies now, they can show, hey, look, here are the validations, here are those go-to-market sales motion, here is our customers, here is our early revenues and things like that. We want to prepare them for that next stage in their journey. Obviously, we help them in bringing some experts if they require, help them in some of the hiring and things like that. But if you ask me, the essential focus is around help in the product and then help in the go-to-market because that's what will either break or make them at that stage of their journey. 
the venture world is changing and investors like you are essentially creating the future of venture capital. What would you like to see happen in the future? What's one thing that you would like to change about venture capital to make it better? When I was doing startups, accessing venture capital was very hard. You had to know people, access to them was like a very hard process and whatnot. I think we've come a long way in that. I think most of the VCs are available. It's easier to reach a VC. So the access part, especially the entrepreneur to VC, has significantly changed in the 2024 years that I've been in the business. It's not even night and day. It's night and like bright day in front of the sun, right? There's still more to go, but that's not the same with the LP to the VC world. I think what needs to fundamentally change is that. It's still hard to know who's investing in a venture fund as an LP. Who's, who's like open for business, who's not, and what is their... They're there still is references, hey, I know this person's person type of a thing. It's still a big thing. I think that needs to talk. I think like what OpenLP and a few other initiatives done is great. And I think more efforts are coming up. But I think to really truly open that up, that needs to probably thaw more. My belief is that in the next 10 years, that will happen so that the access from entrepreneur to VC will be the same as VC to LP so that there's more wider diversified pool of VCs can actually start investing and things like that. Capital formation is an important choking point in the flow of money. There's not enough transparency today in who invests in VC funds, how to invest in VC funds. It's really difficult. It's very similar to how VC was like 15, 20 years ago when you really needed to know people to be able to meet a VC. That has changed. And you're hoping that the same thing will happen in the VCLP world where things will become more democratized. I hope the same thing happens in our world as well. I'm sure it'll happen, I think. So, yeah. We're coming towards the end of our conversation and I want to ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? So I won't say the name for certain reasons, but I'm very passionate about people participating in elections. When I was growing up in India, one of the two things is the focus on education and technology. The second was that we are still a democracy, right? Everybody has the equal opportunity to go actually vote. So I'm very, very passionate about that. I've been following politics since I was 10 years old. So one of the biggest efforts that I do focus on is that make sure that more people go and vote. People are aware of all the different propositions. The reason I don't want to say the name is that a lot of the times these organizations will be tied to a specific ideology or political party. For example, today, one of my tasks this evening is to write postcards with my son, with my wife. We're sending postcards to folks that are participating in the Georgia runoff, right? So we want more people to go vote. So so that's one of my biggest areas of involvement outside of work, which is around uh, making sure everybody participates in elections, everybody participates in this electoral process, either as an informed voter, but also taking leadership positions and things like that, and, and be uh, contested in the in the electoral, electoral process as well. So that's the biggest area that I that I spend in addition to maybe a few other things, but that's the biggest thing because I think like the world needs democracies, and uh, the, for the democracy to work, we all need to vote. <laughs> And we all need to be involved in it. We cannot be indifferent to the process. And uh, so anyway, so that's one of my one of my biggest areas that I get involved in. I see that you lived in two of the most impactful democracies in today's world. And you bring that spirit of participating to contribute to that process of democracy. Karthi, thank you very much for spending time with me. This is very insightful. You've given specific examples based on your experience, your investments and startups that you have worked with. 
your experience as a venture capital investor and your vision for what the invest industry can do in the future. Thank you very much for sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world. Sure, it was a blast talking to you and uh, great to join today. Thank you, Karthi. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.